wherever in the world you are. Welcome to the Health Zone Show with Mihal Omahuna, where with each episode I explore interesting health and well-being topics with a thought-provoking guest. These topics can range from nutrition, relationships, spirituality, finance, creativity, mental health and much, much more, so that you can live a healthier, happier and more authentic life. Guests on the show vary from health experts, spiritual teachers, finance wizards, sports legends, to ordinary people with extraordinary lives. Find us on facebook.com forward slash The Health Zone Show, or you can also join our Facebook group, The Health Zoners. We're also on Twitter, Instagram, pin interest under The Health Zone. Check out our new updated website, www.thehealthzoneshow.com. And at the moment, you can receive a free copy of my latest ebook, Seven Ways to Boost Your Overall Well Being When You Join the Health Zone. Today I'm talking with retired Irish psychiatrist, Arthur, former chief psychiatrist of the Eastern Health Board, and Professor Emeritus of Psychiatry at University College Dublin, Dr. Ivor Brown. Hello, Ivor. Good morning. Tell me, Ivor, why did you write the book Music and Madness? I wrote it to get all the shite out of my system. I didn't think anyone would ever want to read it. Uh, I didn't expect anyone. And now it's being read all over the country, which is extraordinary. Uh, but I, as I say, it was purely to get rid of a lot of stuff. That was my reason for trying to write it. What stuff was that? Uh, just all the garbage of the past, you know. I mean... We make every possible mistake as we go through life. But uh, my the old spiritual guide, he was saying that in, in the end of all, everything that you do has some value ultimately in, in sort of teaching you. But still, looking back, I can see all the stupid things I did. <laughs> and is there anyone that comes to mind when you're thinking about that? Any particular stupidity? <laughs> so, so many. <laughs> For years, I, I used to suffer with a lot of anxiety. And I remember, you know, went through this stupid phase of, of being sort of in competition with others. And thank God all of that's gone now. I couldn't, you know, uh, the whole idea of sort of comparing yourself to other people or worrying about what people think. Thank God to say I feel completely free of that now. I uh, couldn't care less what anyone thinks about me. And any of those ideas that are out there about Ivor Brown, they're all a projection. They're not me. I'm only an old stupid gobshite. <laughs> but but uh, people have that, you know, they invent ideas. <laughs> I heard a while ago that they said that the root cause of all unhappiness is comparisons. Do you think that's true? I think Well, it's a big factor, I think, yeah. To, it's a terrible trap to be worrying about what people think of you. But I, I know that I'm free of it now because a while ago there I heard a report back from someone that um, a psychiatrist, I don't even know his name, down in Cork, it was was uh, saying, Ivor Brown, some, they were asking about a second opinion I was asked, Ivor Brown, sure everyone knows that fucker is nuts. <laughs> and I got a great kick out of that. <laughs> because, you know, as I say, I couldn't care less, you see, which is a tremendous freedom. At last, to be free of that, of, of any worry about what people think. Because ultimately, it's all an illusion, and the ideas people have about you are, are an illusion. 
why do you think people worry so much about what other people think? It's just a very unfortunate way of seeing life. And of course, with the social media, you know, it's got infinitely worse because all this nonsense. Mind you, I never have looked at it even at Facebook, you know, had cornflakes for breakfast. I mean, this is the ultimate stupidity. <laughs> and, you know, because it's accentuated that whole notion of putting out ideas or messages about yourself and what people think of it. Thanks, Ivor. You say your memory of childhood was feeling of loss and being miserable. Why was that? Well, it's a strange mixture because the the environment that my father created, really out of his own insecurities, he created a kind of little separate world um, that was described in that book. And it, in many ways, was idyllic. But you see, you 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 always have your own personal life and take on that. And while he did all that, he also was very clear, as I think I probably said in the book, that I was a mistake, that they had, they had only intended to have two children, but say he had a few jars one night and got in the window, and I was the result. So he, he I grew up, and that I think that's one reason why I felt so sort of lost in the early years, being told and feeling that I was a mistake, that I shouldn't be there which is not a great confidence builder. <laughs> and would you say that might have been one of the reasons that motivated you to do the work that you're doing? Yes, I think um, most people that I think go into some kind of mental health work are trying to solve some problem about themselves. Most people who take up psychiatry. The tragedy of psychiatry, though, is that of, of formal psychiatry is that very few of them actually go on with that investigation to find out, you know, they they get into a position of defence, of protecting themselves from rather than really trying to understand, you know, what, what has motivated them to do what they're doing and what it's all about. And where do you think that defence is coming from, Ivor? It's coming from, say, that people feel there's something wrong and, and, and that they have difficulties and they hope by getting involved in some, in some sort of related profession that they'll get to understand themselves better. But the trouble is that it, for, I think for most of psychiatry, formal psychiatry, it turns into a defensive manoeuvre to, uh, to avoid looking at the pain and all the trauma that we've we need to deal with in life, you know. Because trauma is a very basic part of life. Uh, it's everywhere. And the only, I think the, the only approach sort of is to try and work with that and understand it. The, um, the second of our spiritual guides in, in this form of meditation I do Charity, that was his just nickname. He um, he was saying that we only grow when we suffer, if we accept the suffering. If we suffer and we don't accept it, and we're saying this shouldn't be like this, I shouldn't have to suffer. It you suffer all the more then, but it doesn't serve any purpose. Whereas if you accept the fact that life sends trials and tribulations, and accept that and you work with it to try and improve a bit, then I think it has a real value. But he always made that point that it's only going through these things that we actually grow and and make some progress. 
spiritually anyway, uh, and even in practical life. But it does depend on that crucial thing, as I say, of accepting it, not feeling, oh, this is unjust. You know, and all these stupid notions about God, why does he allow children to starve? And as if he was up there sitting responsible for it all. <laughs> we, we create 90% of the problems that we face. And why are we turning around to blame him or whoever, whoever he is? <laughs> Most times when people are going through an experience of suffering, their immediate response is actually to resist it and to judge it. And, not, and, and say, this shouldn't be like this. I shouldn't have to suffer this. And that's really, a, that's one of the most tragic positions to take up. Because, as I say, life is full of suffering and it's, that's, that's the way in which we make progress. Both in the practical material life and particularly in spiritual as, aspects. Uh, by going through these things and accepting them and then... Um, Get, achieving some growth in the process. But there's a great deal of deep misunderstanding about all that. And the whole notion, as I say, that that in some way this God out there is responsible for our suffering. Well, as I say, if you look at the planet, the mess that it's in, we have created virtually every bit of it. Uh, other animals haven't messed it up in that way. And <clears throat> one of the tragedies is we show we don't show any respect really for other species who have every bit as much right to live and be a, a part of the planet as we have. I think that's one of the big changes, please God, that may come as we improve our level of consciousness that we'd actually take a loving position in respect to um, all other creatures and, and accepting their right to be just as important as us. Do you think that consciousness is changing, Ivor? I do. I think that's one of the hopeful things. I think children are being born now. I don't know if you're familiar with this talk of indigo children, but the children are being born now which are already coming in with a, a much more developed consciousness and understanding and I think that's where the hope lies that as they grow that they'll help to achieve I think by, by being more conscious of the reality of things achieve a, a better approach to life I don't know if you're familiar with the Indian philosophy of yugas oh I am I'm actually a yoga teacher myself yeah, well there, there's supposed to be four of these starting with a very uh, simple, perhaps tribal kind of life, you know, in, in harmony with nature, and then gradually, as, as they produce surplus and create wealth, going into more and more of a deteriorated state. And what's being said now is that we're in the, the yug of Kali. Kali is a version of the great mother goddess. Now, I know in Eastern philosophy, of course, nothing is ever totally good or bad, but she has a pretty heavy uh, reputation. She usually pictures standing on skulls and we're said to be in that fourth stage of deterioration. I think that fits very well. I mean, this mad capitalist world that we're living in uh, is completely insane. 
I don't know if you saw, there was an Oxfam report there some months ago before one of those big economic meetings where they said you could fit the 60 or so wealthiest people on a double-decker bus and they have as much wealth as over somewhere between two and a half and three billion of the poor people in the world and that the inequality is actually going further in that direction. So how can you possibly justify a world where a few people like that are satiated with every kind of luxury and greed and then people are living on less than a dollar a day, you know, or whatever, uh, barely surviving, um, which is the vast majority of the human population. So how anyone could think that this is a sane world <laughs> amazes me. <laughs> it reminds me of a quote by, you probably know him, by uh, Christian Murthy, and he said, it's no measure of health to be well-adjusted to a profoundly sick society. Do you think that's true? I think it's absolutely, I, I quote it frequently. <laughs> I think it's, it's, a very, it's a very clear description. I, I've been uh, very fascinated by it. I heard a lovely, another lovely definition, which is a bit departure from that. A fellow in Canada whom I don't know, Edward Sorter, he came up with a lovely definition of present-day psychiatry that you probably talked to Terry Lynch a lot about, where he said that psychiatry is a barren, he's in Canada, barren tundra, where drugs that don't work are used to treat diseases that don't exist. <laughs> I think that's a perfect society of the madness of psychiatry at the moment, uh, under the, th under the um, control of these big pharmaceutical companies, dishing out these various forms of poisonous drugs. Say so somebody gets diagnosed and labelled with a mental illness and what often ha happens to happen is that we seem to point the finger at them and judge them for where they are and what, what what's happening with them. However, like in like shamanic traditions, when say a person gets a mental illness, they ask themselves, like, what are they collectively doing or being to create this? What do you think of this approach? Uh, what are we doing to create it? Correct, yeah. Yeah. I think that there's there's great sense in that. I I was involved with these conferences of the um, sort of outreach division of the Tavistock, where they de they developed a whole system that was started by Wilfred Bion uh, of a sort of group laboratory, and the. So, it's a critical stance of that, you know, most, there's all sorts of group therapy, but it's mostly about the individual in the group. But this is an actual, uh, it's like a, like a pressure cooker tank of, um, of looking, of, of trying to understand how groups function and how they make us behave as individuals. It turns the question around, so that when an issue comes up. Uh, Instead of asking, why is that person behaving so stupidly, you ask, what is the group doing t to put that person in that position? And there's great wisdom in that when you, when you start to look a bit deeper. When you look at a person, say, with a mental illness or a so-called label disorder, what approach could we use in looking at that wisdom? Well, there's this big example, as I say, of the, the, the group or society around that person very much usually putting them into that position. And of course we have this habit or all the time of projecting the parts of ourselves that we don't want into others. 
I mean, give you a good example of this from years ago. I was asked to see a woman over there. I was doing, you know, consults in Vincent's Hospital. Uh, and I was asked to see this woman who's, because her blood pressure was going up. But when I sat down with her and she talked to tell me, uh, she had actually had been admitted into Grange Gorman, but St. Brendan's, where I had worked. I hadn't met her there. And uh, her husband was a roaring alcoholic. He sat all day in a pub down here in Rennell, I think, actually. And uh, I remember sending the medical students out to look at him uh, and to see the periphery arthritis, you know, and the legs across the leg hangs straight down. So he was in the pub all day. When he did go home, it was usually to get money off her. If he didn't get it from her, he got her went and, and got her from his mother or he'd beat the two of them up. Uh, but she then was admitted with depression into the hospital. And what, the reason I remember this so clearly is that an odd time when he had to go out somewhere with her, he used to walk on the opposite side of the road. This is this alcoholic because he didn't want to be seen associating with the mental patient. <laughs> <laughs> that seems to me to sum up the whole world of, of what we do with people and how we how we uh, literally drive people mad. My old friend R.D. Lang was, was was very good at that. I don't think he got everything right, but he he was very good at seeing how we how we uh, put position people in a position. You know, he used to say things like, "If you had one good friend, you wouldn't ever end up in a mental hospital." Don't know if you ever saw that interview he did in the Late Show years back in 1983. Yeah. <laughs> it's really worth watching. It's very funny. Uh, but he made that point. All those forces are going on. That's why, as I say, that that Tavistock method of looking in that way is is asking, turning the question around. Always. I remember I give you an example. We ran a rather smaller conference one time, and a rather elderly nun was. You know, it was a mixed group of various business people and all kinds of people coming. There were only in this one about 30, but this nun appeared and was after the Vatican Council and she was behaving in a most annoying sort of twittering fashion. Why can't we, like she was at a vicar's tea party, why can't we all be nice to each other? And everyone was a bit pissed off with her. But uh, in the group I was in, they have small and large groups, when this came up, there was another younger nun I said, you know, to make an interpretation, what is the group doing to, to keep this woman in this position? And at first, of course, you always get angry denials. We're not doing anything, it's her. But, but uh, after about 10 minutes, this younger nun said, I have to own something. When I came in, I saw her, I said, she's the type of one that won't take part in, you know, this was after the Second Vatican, I won't take part in the changes and sing with guitars and things. <laughs> so... <laughs> She admitted that, in other words, and, and as soon as she said that, this is the interesting thing, it unlocked that older woman. And she went up then to the large group and blasted them from a height of, what they, of the way they'd been putting her in this position. And that, there's a lot of wisdom in that way of looking at things. I don't know if I'm making it clear. It is what's come to mind for me, Ivor, is you look at the sicknesses and the diseases in the world. Would you think or do you think that we're collectively and consciously creating that? To, to an ex- extent. I mean, you can't um, go overboard completely. You know, you get things that we, it's hard to understand, like a young person getting a sarcoma where they have to have a whole leg removed. Uh, 
that doesn't fit a picture of us in some way producing that. But when you look at common forms of cancer like breast cancer and, and look at heart problems, then you can see, of course, how the way people are living, literally you can see it producing that condition. I actually got into a state, then I stopped it because it was getting upsetting, where I'd be going around to the supermarket and I'd say, I'd be getting five years, three years. Because <laughs> you could see the face getting bloated and red and the pressure was starting to go up. Uh, and, and then we talk about a heart attack. As, you know, this, this, again, this false idea that something's attacking from outside, when in fact, the way we're living, people spend 20 years uh, drinking gin and tonic lunches and greed and all the stress to produce that heart attack. <laughs> you know, and, and, but we we went overboard this idea, and even the word attack, in other words, the notion that there, there are forces out there that um, attack us and create these things, when in fact we create them ourselves. A wonderful insight in that, I think, and I don't know, people don't seem to have really taken fully in... Uh, Oscar Wilde, who, you know, who had such wisdom behind it all, where he, with the picture of Dorian Gray, where he took the life of the person and put it on the picture, and it became more and more horrific. But in fact, if you take it back, people actually write that on themselves, and you can see it if you look. You can see them preparing for the heart attack or whatever, or the stroke. For a lot of people, even people listening into this now at the moment, believe that happiness is actually outside of them, and they believe that things outside of them is actually making them unhappy. What are your thoughts on this, Ivor? Well, it's another of these illusions. I think, first of all, this seeking for happiness is the sure way not to be happy. Um, if you're striving to be happy and, and therefore very unhappy because you're not happy, it's, it's a recipe, as I say, for unhappiness. But if you're just accepting life and doing the best you can, then then uh, usually will be fairly happy. That's where some of these simple tribal people, the few that are left, like in, in the Amazon Basin or Peru or, or in some parts of Africa, they seem to be the only contented human beings that, uh, and, and you know, that are actually reasonably happy. But they're living a very simple life in harmony with nature. So, uh, whereas we, we, we've, we've lost the plot. <laughs> I mean, this period, I think, is the first time there are more people now living on concrete in cities than in relation to the land, which is rather frightening, you know, when you think of what a sterile world it is where there, where there is no real contact with nature. And Ivor, what does happiness mean for you? I, I don't use the word happiness. Uh, you know, I, I think you try to do the best you can and uh, I think you can be reasonably contented if you behave reasonably well. But of course we fall down all the time and and we, we then, of course, create, you know, by getting involved in jealousies and whatever, all the human frailties that we get involved in. So, and I don't think the whole notion of happiness out there, something that you have to seek, makes any sense. I, I think perhaps a more 
sensible view would be to do the best you can and try and create whatever bit of love you can. The one unmentionable four-letter word nowadays is love. <laughs> I mean, one thing that I find very sad, a whole younger generation now live in the social media. I go walking up the daughter there, you know, and, that, and people over 40 will say hello to you. The younger ones coming have these yokes out of their ears everywhere you look, and they're talking away. You can't even tell who's psychotic anymore because <laughs> they're all talking to themselves. Uh, and they completely fail to relate to a, a person just passing them. Do you not think that's very sad? Uh, you know Richard Carney, his Corkman, philosopher, he wrote a lovely paper there. It was in the New York Times, and I think they republished, republished it in the Irish Times, called, he said, people don't touch anymore. And, and I think there's great wisdom in that. We're, we're afraid to touch, or as, as Ronnie Lang said on that, remember that television program, because I have a CD or a DVD of it. He said, people are going around the world afraid of other people. That's our greatest fear. In, you know, 500 years ago, you had a wall city and you were afraid of the, of the wildness outside and of boars and wolves and things, which was, you know, usually weren't particularly dangerous. But now we're afraid of other human beings, which is, again, a very sad commentary. I think, I mean, you, it's not, nothing is all bad and, and I think there's a lot of good and people can get very good use from the social media um, like my son has a website for publicising his Ilan piping, and uh, all that's useful. But this preoccupation with living in that world and denying direct relationship, I think, is 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 another aspect of the deterioration that Krishnamurti, as you quoted. Because I heard a while back, I read in a book, said that one of the root causes of mental health or even mental illness is because of lack of love of oneself. Yeah, that's... I don't think you can love other people if you don't... if you can't generate some love for yourself. But, of course, it brings up the question, what is the self? What is the true self? If you're just loving a greedy ego that's trying to grab as much as possible, that isn't very lovable. But But... Behind that, there is a self that, that in, in fact, isn't totally personal, you know, as Carl Jung would point out. And, um, and because that self is given to us, we don't own it. And I think that's what the love of the self should be in relation to that. But the the, the notion of an ego that's, striving to grab more and more and, and only sees um, progress in terms of, of competition and that you only can prove by, by knocking someone else down. That's, that's a false science that unfortunately was, wasn't so much Charles Darwin but his followers generated that, the notion that evolution is primarily about competition, about survival of the fittest. It's, it's actually a false understanding of evolution. Uh, Jean-Baptiste Lamarck, who 
preceded Darwin and was the real founder of the notion of, of evolving species. Um, he, he was an old man when Darwin published The Origin of Species, but uh, his view was that evolution happens mainly by cooperation and of species helping one another. Uh, so I mean, if you put it in percentage term, probably 80% of, of evolution is about cooperation. And the reason human beings have done, if you like, to survive so well is because we learn the trick of cooperating early. Um, because in relation to most large animals, we're very weak. But by combining, we were able to um, manage to survive, you know. So, but the reason that Lamarck has been written out is because he saw purpose in this. He saw that evolution happens as part of striving. You know, the, the simple thing sort of would be the giraffe with getting a longer neck by trying to reach up. That, but, but you see, uh, formal science can't tolerate any idea of purpose. This is one of the belief systems underlying. There can't be any purpose. Everything has to happen by chance. Now, he was, he was saying the opposite, but that's offensive to, to the orthodox scientist. But I think that position that everything is is just chance is a is not a is not a useful or correct position. So for me, Lamarck talked a lot more sense, even but even than Darwin. But Darwin himself actually accepted most of what Lamarck proposed, and um, you know he he said himself he couldn't see how the eye could develop, except as part of some. You know that half an eye isn't much use, uh, so he he accepted Lamarck's position f fairly fully, but the followers, of course, the neo-Darwinians, coming down to that clown Richard, what's his name Dawkins, uh, they they can't tolerate any idea that there could be purpose in anything. But these are, see, the misunderstanding there is that this is not science. This is a belief system underlying what, what a lot of scientists believe. It isn't the actual science itself. A lot of good work is done in science. But the belief that there can't be any purpose, that's not a scientifically demonstrated statement. It's simply a belief system. Rupert Sheldrake wrote a very good book, um, The Science Delusion, where he took 10 of the uh, beliefs in orthodox science and turned them upside down into a question and then showed how you could show them how false they were. So you have to make a distinction, in other words, between valid scientific work, you know, experimenting and slowly working things out, and the belief system underlying that, which to say doesn't allow any purpose. But, you know, you were mentioning, is there a change coming? I think some of the young people before now will, and those who come on to a higher level of consciousness will see a way through that. And uh, it's interesting. I mean, people often accuse me of being very pessimistic. But actually, if you look, there are a lot of young people now saying that I don't want to be part of this, this greed system and 
capitalism and they're going out and starting little farms. In Denmark, there's something like a hundred small horticultural farms. They're all over Europe. There are a few starting to grow, develop here, eco-villages. These are people, and, and they're places like California where you have physicists who say, no, I'm going to grow vegetables. <laughs> uh, that, that was a, a thin stream in the 60s with the hippie movement. Uh, and they kind of, uh, by closing up, their, setting up these communes and, and closing the boundary, they died. But since then, a lot of young people now are, are, are using the social media, for example, in a sensible way and in communication with each other, and at the same time taking a very different view of starting to harmonize with nature and, and grow things and, and um, have respect for other species. Thanks, Ivor. And I know you just mentioned about purpose. What do you think is the purpose of life? That's a heavy question. I think myself, I mean, again, I suppose because of the meditation I've been doing, um, or trying to do, that ultimately the purpose of life is to reach whatever the source is, it's like a vast circulation that we're very slowly beginning to move back towards that source, source that we came out of originally. So that the goal of life, or the real meaning, would be trying to move in that direction. Which is very much uh, heart-centered. So that it's very much to do with opening the heart. This is... Uh, this is another thing that's been changing in recent times. There's been a great deal of study of the brain and with the imaging that we can now look inside the brain, although it's still at an early stage and there's, you know, there's a lot of confusion as to exactly what's happening in different parts of the brain. Nevertheless, it's an area of active study now and they're learning rapidly. But there's still very little understanding of what the heart is. But in the last 30 years or so, quietly, um, see, the real scientific work happens out on the periphery. There are uh, maverick scientists who are looking at the heart, and what the evidence they're coming up with is that the heart is actually much more a real centre because it's, it starts in the embryo before anything else, very early, before the brain hasn't started at all, and it never stops from the moment it starts beating uh, until you die. I think I was saying that actually in one talk, but a fellow corrected me, said that when you sneeze, apparently it stops for a millisecond. But, but other than that, I mean, it actually goes on from, the, from when it appears early in the embryo. In, I think within the first 20 weeks before that, uh, until the day you die. So... What's coming, beginning to come out now, and I think this will be the next big scientific breakthrough, is that the heart actually is very much a, a powerful centre. It's a lot more than a pump. It's, it has its own mini-brain, if you like. It has something like between various estimates, between 10,000 or 40,000 neurons, and that the heart actually sends more messages to the brain than the reverse, but they work as twin together and uh, 
but the heart, you see, is by through the pumping the blood is in touch with every atom of us, right? Every cell, and including every cell in the brain. So, it's it's extraordinarily um, central in that sense. The other thing is that electromagnetically, it's far more powerful than the than the brain. You can measure the heart outside the body altogether, or you can measure around the body, you know, with ECGs and so on. The brain, you have to put the electrodes right on the head, and it's much, much more difficult to get close to it. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar, the, the Dalai Lama has been dialoguing with a number of scientists as part of that work, he, he sent a few monks. Very, there's a group of Tibetan monks that go very deep. He sent two or three of those over to a fellow called Richard Davison in Wisconsin. And he was fitting them out with all, he had these advanced EEGs and you know fMRI scans. And uh, they started laughing. And they thought he, he thought they were laughing at the funny gear he was playing. But when they asked them, they said, "No, this is where it starts in the heart." <laughs> so they're aware of the centrality of the heart. So I'm just mentioning these things because I think we're on the verge of a number of real breakthroughs in with an expansion of consciousness that that we'll see a different kind of reality, or perhaps a truer view of reality than we have been up to now. Because, because of the espousing the, the, the neo-Darwinian notion, you know that life is all about competition. That's that's really been the scientific background of colonialism and of all this greedy capitalism. The notion that you find happiness by grabbing as much as you can. I remember there before the the crash, a fellow came to me one day depressed because. Of, Another gent down the road had got a bigger car. <laughs> you know, this it's hard to fathom the stupidity of things like that. They say the longest journey is from the head to the heart. Do you think this is true? It takes a lot of work, I think, to, to work and open the heart. And, uh, and it's only when we do that that we really then make direct we can get touch of direct experience with the very subtle energy that's coming out from whatever the source is. I don't like using the word God, but whatever no, the source that started the creation but is also imminent and that there's transmission coming from that all the time. But if we haven't worked uh, in, in terms of meditation and cleaning out all the garbage to open the heart, that bounces off us. But when the heart is opens, then you can have direct experience of that very subtle energy, the most subtle energy that exists, which is what they call transmission. Uh, they often use light as a comparison, but light is far heavier than that very subtle energy that is coming from whatever the source is all the time. But as I say, it's bouncing off most of us. <laughs> because we haven't opened the heart. So that's the sort of view I doubt. You were asking what's the meaning of life. That's something to do with what I see rather dimly. <laughs> but it's interesting that if you can get into some of that experience, it's not dependent on the senses. Almost all our experiences dependent on the five senses, you know, feeling, touch, um, 
sight, hearing. This bypasses all that because it comes in as direct experience, which I think is quite interesting. I know in your talk in Cork you mentioned about a cleansing practice that you do. Could you speak a little bit about that, Ivor? Yeah, well, in the this form of meditation is called Sahaj Marg, which simply means Sahaj, natural. Marg is a word you see in street signs in India for a way or a street, a natural path. But um, the, the most recent guide who's now working has accentuated this emphasis on the heart. I mean, it's always been heart-centered. And he's now very actively... Um, pushing what he calls heartfulness and saying like we don't have to be doing that meditation you could be going to mass but you could still go into heartfulness which is really to, a way of of sort of demonstrating and getting people to actually begin to feel the difference between just meditating and then uh, actually receiving that transmission that very subtle energy but the cleaning is a very critical part of that system uh, in, in terms of the daily routine, like you meditate in the morning, but in the evening when your d- day is done, you um, spend half an hour simply making the thought that all the impressions of the day are going away backwards. As the original old fellow said, like smoke or vapor. Uh, and Doing that every day and some forms of deeper cleaning, uh, that is what gradually will allow the heart to open. You see, that in in that system, and in, in, in Buddhism generally, there isn't a concept of sin. There's, there's simply a concept of, of that, we, that everything that happens with us leaves an imp- tends to leave an impression. So a very positive experience, like looking at a beautiful painting or hearing a, a beautiful piece of music, can leave an impression just as much as um, some nasty things that we do. Uh, and the idea of the cleaning is to keep cleaning away those impressions which then allows the heart to open. It's like as if it's surrounded, as you take in impressions, it gets harder and harder and becomes like a cocoon. That, and that's what keeps it closed up. If there's someone listening in now today and they're very much in their head and their heart is very closed, would you have any thoughts or suggestions for them? Well, I think they could think about our language of the, uh, and what the old people were aware of. You don't say broken brain, you say broken hearted, sweetheart, uh, a man after me. I remember when they started doing transplants, somebody said the phrase a man after my own heart could have a rather sinister meaning. <laughs> but uh, no, but all the language of poetry and, and you know, of the old people, it's all heart centred. As, as if there was a very real awareness that that um you know that the heart is the the real center there's a very good documentary by an english fellow with an irish name david malone and he goes you know he, he does a documentary going around interviewing various people like he was interviewing a fellow in the british museum and who was looking at the ancient egyptians used to have a, a 
a weighing scale of weighing the heart against a feather <laughs> and it was very much a central thing for them. Um, so he, you know, in that documentary, he goes around uh, interviewing various people, and some very interesting work coming out. But all this is relatively recent. I say that in in science, they, I mean, even literally people like Norman Deutsch, who's done great work and study of the brain and Ledoux, they don't mention the heart. They haven't got to it yet, but it's coming. One thing I was really interested in when I was reading your book, you said that there's proportionally less mental hospital beds per head of population in India in comparison to the West. I mean, that's from the past. When when I was out in the Harvard School of Public Health, there was a Sikh psychiatrist. This is back in 1960. So it was really a comment at that time. And at that time, for a population under 3 million in the Republic, we had 20 thousand mental hospital beds in India for a population at that time of over 600 million they had 20,000 mental hospital beds now it's changed since uh, most of the old hospitals here are gone but uh, and there was all this debate then you know did we have more schizophrenia than uh, elsewhere which really is a, a bogus concept I think what actually happened was that when, when we, in the early 19th century, we had about 8 million people here, most of them abjectly poor. Uh, and then when with the series of famines and the Great Famine, that moved down rapidly to down 5 million, 4 million, and eventually under 3 million. But in the middle 19th century, they built all these big mental hospitals for a population of 8 million. So when you have a big institution with beds, it'll suck people in. If you're out in the bog in the rain, it's easier to go and get three meals a day in a mental hospital. So I think that was much more the reality of why we had so many people in in mental hospital. There was a point back at there around the 1960, that was the time I was looking at this, when one in every hundred people in Leitrim, Roscommon, was in a mental hospital. <laughs> it's an astonishing figure. But that has changed. And in that sense, you could say there's been some improvement. Actually, the improvement is largely illusory, too, because the old habits that were in the hospital moved out into... I think I was very associated with trying to create community psychiatry. They, they came out and, and did the same things outside as they were doing inside, which, of course, isn't re any real change. I didn't realise that for a long time. In regards to people working in that area, mental health and psychiatry and all that, Ivor, how important do you think it is for them to be conscious and heart-centred in their approach? I would think it uh, absolutely essential if, if they're to do any deeper work. But, see, there's another great misunderstanding there. Because... Psychiatry has emerged out of medicine, and because in medicine the ethos is the notion of treatment, that you do something to bring about change. Now, it works reasonably well in aspects of surgery, and, and some of the you know, things they've developed surgically are, sound almost miraculous, like taking the, 
the co- putting a little silver co- or whatever the metal is coil in and p- tracking it right up into the head and and o- moving it into a, a cerebral aneurysm and blocking it off. Some of these things are amazing. So in medicine surgery, it's uh, it works fairly well, but below that level, there's still a misunderstanding because you can carry out. Uh, say a heart lung transplant but unless the natural healing uh, strength or force in the person starts to work then to get themselves back together you'll say sick and die and they do some so in other words even even where there's a, a major um uh, uh, interferes is not quite the right word but a major input of surgery say like a heart lung transplant ultimately below that the person has to take over and bring up their healing natural healing power or it's not going to work and as I say they'll stay sick and die and they do so that's the picture even in medicine but as you move across into psychiatry coming out of medicine uh all of those kinds of sophisticated maneuvers that s- surgeons and radiologists undertake don't exist. So you're simply back left with the human being. And most of the problems that we... Funny, they talk about mental health problems nowadays when they mean mental illness. You think somehow by changing the name it, it, it makes a, a different reality, <laughs> which is another absurdity. But... Um, so you, if you look at the language, you find in medicine we have antibiotics. In psychiatry, we have antidepressants. They've taken the, literally the language, anti, anti-inflammatories, anti-psychotics. So they, they've, they've taken all this thinking across where it doesn't, simply doesn't apply. And what I was trying to get around to saying is that the only real change that can happen now in, in this sphere of what we call mental health is the change a person brings about in themselves by working on themselves. So they, the role of the psychiatrist, if they were doing it, or the therapist, is to support that. There are many problems where a person can't do it on their own, and they, they can't even understand it clearly. So they need the support and help of someone who hopefully is professionally trained to help them to to come to wrestle with that problem. But they still have to do the essential work. And to my mind, that's the deepest misunderstanding in the whole thing. It's not about doing something to a person to bring about change, which gives rise to things like electric shock treatment and and all the the drug treatments. It's, It's finding ways to support and assist the person in bringing about change in themselves. So it's a combination that they have to do the work, but very often, in the majority of cases perhaps, they can't do it on their own, and they need the support of someone who can perhaps see it more clearly, who has some training to support them and help them in working at that. And Ivor, what role do you think personal responsibility plays in all of this? Well, I mean, if if, if it's, it's to do with the work a person does to bring about change, then obviously that rests on personal responsibility. That's what it's about. <laughs> so it's as simple as that. You know, there's always a combination there. 
we need to achieve reasonable independence, and that's what development and growing up is about. But we also depend very much on interdependence. There's a difference between being in a dependent relationship where you're sort of sucking off someone else to solve your problems and being in an interdependent relationship where where if two people who are relating or loving each other but are essentially managing their own responsibility. And that's, I suppose, the nearest you can get to, to what we call mental health. Do you think, Ivor, that psychiatry has failed society or society has failed to take responsibility for itself? I think very largely so, because of that incorrect notion that somebody else can bring about change in you. Uh, I, mean, I think that's that's where the real misunderstanding lies, that so that a professional taking the model of medicine and surgery can do something that changes you. And that's why you end up with something like what they call ECT, you know, producing an epileptic fit. Uh, it's an illusion. I don't think, I mean, now that there's a lot of problems of side effects of these drugs coming up, some of the psychiatrists are now saying, oh, we need to go back and start getting more, more people having ECT. <laughs> they're not changing, they're, they're still not getting the idea that the person has to do some work. And uh, I, I think all that this ECT, which is, you know, giving an electric shock that produces an epileptic fit, uh, which, if you like, is, a, is kind of like giving a laxative and clearing out things for temporarily, but it doesn't change anything. All the, the set of the personality, all the behaviours and all that that person is will reassert itself. So I think beyond creating a little confusion and temporarily, therefore the person not seeing all their problems, it's, the whole thing is an illusion. And yet this is what they're now embracing um, you know, particularly some psychiatrists who who see the the um, unsatisfactory nature of particularly these antidepressants. What comes to mind for me, Ivor, you probably heard of this before, but it says a definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again and expect a different result. You're doing something, it doesn't work, and then you think, if I keep doing it, it'll work. <laughs> you know, it's another absurdity. <clears throat> so, so if you're going to bring about different results, you'll have to do something different. What would be your vision for a therapeutic community that provides a warm, loving human context where a person can grow, develop in a healthy lifestyle and be able to manage themselves, Ivor? I think there'll be differences there. You see, you have a sort of subgroup of people who who are tend to be naturally introverted and they use... Absurd terms like Asperger's syndrome, but people who tend to be a bit introverted and sensitive and find out sometimes difficulty in in social relationships. These are the young people who will tend to go become psychotic uh, uh, because they they hit a reverse in life, either in terms of trying to relate or in terms of failure of some kind. And for example, if you fail the leaving certificate. And this is really what psychosis is. If you can change reality to say that you're John Q from outer space or you've, you're Jesus Christ's brother-in-law or you have a message for the Pope, then your self-esteem can rise. But, of course, you've departed from the ordinary consensus. So in, every, in the old hospital ward, you always had someone who was Jesus Christ or, or who was um, 
Lord Nelson, whatever the culture happened to bring up. I remember hearing a story about a hospital in Edinburgh where they had a patient there for years who thought he was Lord Nelson. Uh, and then someone was admitted who also thought he was Lord Nelson. They were what the hell do we do with them? So somebody said, well, let them stay together for the night. And the next morning, the, the new fellow said, I'm not really Lord Nelson, I'm Lady Hamilton. <laughs> <It> was... <laughs> so that's, I think, to me, the essence of what psychosis really is, is you create a reality that will allow you to feel you're more worthwhile. But it's at the expense of departing from the general consensus so other people don't accept it. Um, and you end up in a, or in the old days, in a back ward thinking you're Jesus Christ. Would you say it's a way of coping, say, with their trauma or surviving the world that they're in? It's a way, but it's, it's really essentially a counterproductive way because it, it, it's creating an illusion that, and that others don't accept. And, and, and it's, it's creating a world in, in fiction without doing the work. I remember, just an example, at the time when I had to start this Irish Foundation for Human Development, we were getting a lot of money from the Bank of Ireland, and I, the fellow came in one day and, and he said he was St. Joseph, because his name was Joseph. And at the point where he was there, the governor of the Bank of Ireland, because we, we got nearly a million punts or whatever they were at the time from them, uh, called on the phone and I used that. I said, like, you think you're St. Joseph. He thinks he's the governor of the Bank of Ireland. But the two of you have to put the trousers down and have a shite every day. <laughs> and there isn't any, you know, it's, one is just as much a delusion as the other. And it was very, he, he, uh, he saw it then and, and, and accepted some change that he didn't have to be St. Joseph. So, you know, the, the, the idea of being the governor of the bank it's just as much a delusion as the as the psychotic statement of a schizophrenic. It doesn't actually alter what that person really is. I know one of your approaches for helping people is holotropic breathwork. Could you tell me a little bit about the cyber? Yeah, well, I, ha- I haven't been engaged in that in recent years. Um, this was something that, that Stan Groff developed. And you know, he, and he put a name on. It. Essentially, what he did, and he said this himself, is he took the various things that tribal people do. They either have some form of dance, of body work, or massage, or whatever you know, something of that kind of of, of body manipulation, and um, and some form of of breathing. And so he took these. The things that most tribal societies uh, do carry out and to create a catharsis every so often to clear the atmosphere um, and brought them together and called them holotropic. But that's essentially what it is. But uh, So I, I worked with a sort of modified version of that for a good many years when I was in Grange Gorman and we, we took over the old Protestant church and it meant you could work with 12 or 15 people on the one afternoon using this combination of, breath- of strong breathing. And of course, in, again, in, in, the, in the various esoteric forms of meditation, breathing's always been very central. And some body work. 
uh, and people would go into then into their traumatic experiences, therefore bring about some resolution. Does it help that individual to release that trauma from their body? It does, but there's a, there's a whole lot to be said about that. You see that, um, and I don't know if we can get into that now. Uh, when when you're faced with some deep tra- trauma. The simplest way to think about it is think about loss rather than abuse or all the other things. Uh, so if you lose, as a small child, you lose your mother or, or a, a grandmother that you love, you're usually not given the opportunity to grieve. You know, small children don't often go to the funeral. So, so in effect, they, they feel the loss, but they've no way of experiencing it, so they freeze it. Most of the work with trauma is to do with things that are, that were too much to be able to experience at the time and and therefore they were put into freeze so they're in you now but they haven't actually been um experienced or have gone through the emotion that would naturally accompany that and the work, therefore, in whatever method you use, whether it's holotropic or other things, is is to activate that and release that frozen thing so that the person now can actually fully experience what that traumatic event was. And um, so they may, you see, they may know, I'm thinking of one particular, of, of, say, someone whose mother died 10 years ago, and they know intellectually that happened. But when they go into the experience, it comes as the mother actually be, having just died. Uh, and I remember one very graphic thing, a woman like that whose mother had died 10 years before when we were working in the old church. And uh, when the experience came forward, she, she, as far as she was concerned, her mother had just died and she wanted to go out to arrange the funeral. Uh, and she was now crying for the first time because weeping and crying is one of the main avenues through which we actually heal, whatever way you arrive at that. Is there a way to know if a person has an unreleased trauma or pain? Yeah, you'll find various signs. You'll find usually that they're, because they've been been traumatized and then had to, in some way, what we call dissociate, split the personality, they're living a very constricted life. I remember one person who came to me who felt he had no memory below 10 years of age whatsoever. In fact, that's very often the key to something that the person said, I don't remember hardly anything of my childhood. And of course, when you, but the reason they're not remembering is because in freezing whatever the trauma is, they have to freeze the general uh, experience of that childhood. So when it opens up, then you find out all the detail. What I call this is the frozen present, that it's gone into freeze, but when it comes, it doesn't come as, oh, now I remember, because you remember already. It's It comes as the actual experience has, uh, that's just happened, and with all the detail that would that goes with that experience, which you don't get in ordinary memory. So essentially the job is is um, bringing that forward so the person experiences in whatever way and then it gradually moves from the present into the past and becomes part of memory, which is our long-term memories, our record of the past, of our life. We are our memories in that sense.
And Ivor, what has been your level of success in healing people or helping people recover from mental illness and using this approach? I think where the person embraces the work that has to be done and has the courage, and, and it's very painful, to go through all the pain associated with whatever that traumatic experience is, then you you can see a, a very fundamental change and they they tell you how they feel free for the first time in their life, you know. But um, it doesn't always successful because it depends on the willingness of the person to actually go through all of that. And of course, I find now a major problem in the middle of that is that they're already now on antidepressants because someone has given them this absurd title of bipolar or unipolar depression. Uh, and and they've been put on an antidepressant, which of course gets in the way then of doing the work, which makes it much more difficult than need be. When someone comes to me and, and I Trish, who looks after me there, fills out a sheet and I see no medication. I give a great sigh of relief because you've a, you've a big job to gradually wean them off these things so that you can start to do some work with them or that they can do some work. Um, so far from helping, they, 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 they make the whole work so much more difficult. How come they make it work so difficult? Is it because they desensitize the person or what? If you, if you take the position that of the frozen present, that they've frozen some traumatic experience which is affecting them their whole life and using a lot of their energy to keep that in cold storage, to add a drug in further em- reinforces that and further damps it down. Uh, so far from helping, it actually makes it more difficult to get to the point of being able to do some work of bringing that forward and activating it. The reality is at the moment either mental illness, autism, cancer and many other diseases and disorders are reaching epidemic levels. Why do you think this has been happening? No, that's quite a complex question. There are a number of reasons. But the essential one is that we have to die. This is something people would like to think it doesn't exist. We all have to die. So if you eliminate or lessen a lot of the things, I mean, if you go into an old graveyard, you'll find a lot of children dying of infectious diseases. As we've made, had some success with combating those, people are coming through more. But eventually, they do have to die. So if you don't go down with things like TB, like I had, or pneumonia, or all these infectious illnesses, then you come up against the uh, the internal deterioration of the body, you know, with where where you lose control of managing your cells and then you tr- they start uh, growing and taking, doing their own thing and then you end up with something like lung cancer. So, so uh, you know, it has to happen one way or the other because, I say, we have to die. I don't know why I'm taking so long to achieve that. <laughs> I think I should have been gone a long time ago, but there must be some big major defect that I've been kept here. You must be doing something right in there. Or doing something wrong, I think. <laughs> but, um, <clears throat> you see, there's a lot of misunderstanding about cancer, too. Because of this language, you know, being it's like a heart attack of cancer is some sort of evil thing that's attacking us from the outside. We have something like between 50 and 75 trillion cells in us. That's a million, million 
So we've literally billions of these cells that are us. And once we develop and become a human being, these are all little living creatures that once were amoeba in a pool. And it's still the most common form of life that exists. We'll, we exist on a bed of bacteria. Uh, and we've incorporated some billions of these. Now, once we're there, whether we like it or not, we have the job of managing those trillions of cells. And if we, and most of us get on with that reasonably well, but as we get older, our ability to manage and keep them all doing the things they're supposed to be doing in terms of our structure, you know, liver and lungs and all that, uh, some of them can break free. And, and of course, then they start growing. So far from cancer being unhealthy cells, these are cells that have become, that are now producing and doing their own thing. But it doesn't happen to fit with us. So they're actually very healthy cells. But the trouble is they're not behaving as part of our management system. And therefore they start growing and, and you know, can then fill your lungs and then metastasize all over the body. So that's essentially what cancer is. It's a failure of our part to to carry out this management of our this this enormous orchestra of cells that that we have to to maintain health. And that's why if you get someone like Ronald Reagan, as soon as they cut off one bit of a cancer, it's generated another because he was falling apart. <laughs> and he wasn't able to manage all this multitude of cells. So that's, to my mind, essentially what cancer is. But our thinking has become clouded. Um, there's a lot of history in that. In the 19th century, Louis Pasteur demonstrated pretty, as near as you can ever demonstrate anything, that bacteria didn't, didn't clearly yet know what they were, but they, that, that they could turn wine sour and, uh, and, and that they could cause infection. And the whole of medicine therefore swung over to the notion of combating these evil bacteria. And it still comes out in all our ads. But alongside Pasteur in, in the same century, almost you know, within a few years contemporary, Claude Bernard was an equally celebrated physiologist. But his focus was on, as distinct from demonizing the bacteria, his focus was on our, what he called, he wrote a, a book called the Milieu Interieur, the, our internal milieu, our management system. In other words, he was the, the grandfather, if you like, of immunity. and But he wasn't listened to, he was eclipsed by Pasteur thing, and the whole of medicine swung over to attack, fighting these attacking creatures, except that you're really attacking, your, you're fighting yourself, you know? Whereas, and what's happened now, and that's why we're at a very interesting phase now in medicine, is that the antibiotics have, been, through misuse, have largely failed. There are very few coming on stream. And, we've, and by misuse, we've turned a number of relatively harmless bacteria like staphylococci into monsters, you know, these like MRSA. So we've created ferocious uh, bugs now that, that are causing real devastation. And the antibiotics are failing. So 
medicine is now fairly rapidly swinging over back to Claude Bernard that we have to find ways to strengthen our immunity. So things like training viruses to combat cancer and so on. Uh, so that's that's a fundamental shift that's beginning to happen in medicine now. A lot of it is still not fully conscious. In China, the, you continue to pay the doctor for as long as you're healthy and you're well. And you stop paying then when you're sick. Do you think a model like that might work in Ireland and elsewhere in the West. I don't know how far it even works in China. I think it's somewhere down to kind of mythology. But but I think, essentially, it's, it's, it's saying something sensible. Uh, that, you know, that we, we, we're far too dependent on the notion that doctors manage our health. Because if if the intrinsic part of health, including what we call mental health, is your self-management, then to hand that over to anyone is already putting you on the road of sickness because this is the very definition of what it is to be healthy is where you're in a state of management of these billions of cells. Uh, If you try to project that out to a doctor, you're already actually moving into the field of of sickness because you're, you're giving up your essential job, which, as I say, is to manage yourself as best you can, with, often with help. So uh, that's why, you know, I often think that the antidepressants, starting with the Prozac stable, which should never have been released, it was a complete criminal scam. But anyway, uh, all that generation uh, of antidepressants, the, although the the drugs themselves are damaging in the sense of interfering with our proper self-management, the message that goes with them is far more lethal than the drug, which is that when you start to feel depressed, you have to hand over to someone and something to change that rather than manage it yourself. Now, there are conflicting messages. You notice all over the place now people are saying if you exercise and improve your diet and sleep better, that in fact it'll have a major role in combating things like depression. So that message is out there. But at the same time, you have this handing over. And now you have, as part of capitalism, the most powerful transnational companies, uh, the pharmaceutical companies, which, like, the, the big capitalist companies are already damaging the planet and putting it in, you know, real danger. But the pharmaceutical companies are attacking us inside. <laughs> Most of the others are attacking the planet outside. And um, that's that's highly dangerous and lethal, and we've handed over enormous power to them. Psychiatry is largely like a handmaiden of these drug companies now. And Ivor, what do you think needs to happen for us to take that power back? I think literally what you say to take the power back and and not hand it over to them anymore. But I mean it's easy to say that. There there's an enormously powerful caucus there. And all the time this tendency in us not to take to, to face our responsibility but to hand it over. So, you know, if you're depressed it's much easier to think, Oh, I'll go to the doctor and 
And of course, that message, I remember I've heard it on both television and radio saying, whenever you feel depressed now, you must go to your doctor and, and get your treatment. I mean, that's a lethal message. <laughs> it's, it's so uh, we're all the time trying to ditch her, the responsibility we have to take for ourselves and each other, hopefully in a loving way. And do you think either on a collective level we're actually giving these people our power? Yes. Simple as that. It's just part of this whole, all that we've been talking about, handing over functions that we desperately need to take responsibility for. But it's now materialised into these huge, powerful companies. I mean, you won't get any, if we, if we were to cut down for example, if all the psychiatrists tomorrow morning use the amount of drugs that I... I mean, I've had some some very psychotic people in just to reach them. An antipsychotic can be a bit, for a time, useful. But if they all use the same amount of drugs, say, as I would, Enda Kenny is not going to be very pleased. And there are a hell of a lot of people in these big companies like Pfizer down in Cork and wherever are going to lose their jobs. So um, that's not going to be very popular. <laughs> you know, it's it's a whole revolving system, interlocking. But again, this whole thing of jobs is itself an illusion. I mean, a given society produces so much wealth and in terms of producing food and whatever. Why do we talk about having to have jobs to do it? Why, you know, why can't we just share whatever's there out among everyone? <laughs> Which I suppose you say is an extreme form of what communism is supposed to be. But I mean, it's, it, there's, a, no, there's a basic logic there. Uh, instead of that, we're, we're, we're creating this system that the only way you can distribute wealth is through a job. And you end up with things like the bus strike today and all the absurdities of these negotiations and I mean, there's so much there, and, and there are systems around the world. You know, there are attempts beginning to happen where people do exchange barter systems. So as a psychotherapist, I might give some psychotherapy and they might give me some potatoes or whatever. You know, that, and there are, you know, in parts of America and other parts, people have been trying to operate some of this quite successfully, and farmers' markets and all this kind of stuff. So there are various forces trying to develop things in different directions. It just hasn't come together yet. Just like the realisation of the heart hasn't come yet fully. But I, I think, I, I feel very optimistic. I think whatever happens, whether we move into a big period of destruction now, that what will be left will be a much more ho hopeful, s simpler society, which won't move back to the original yuga, it'll move on to a new version of tribalism, if you like. And where do you think it needs to start? <clears throat> does it need to start from the on the grassroots, ground-up level, or does it need to start from the top down? I think the only real change is to start inside yourself. And no other real change can happen till, till the person and each person works on themselves. 
and then the community can begin to it's, it's a sort of chicken and egg or catch 22 thing but you can't and I mean I really tried with that foundation or we you know we, tr- we went into Ballyfermot and up to Derry trying to cr- help help the people to create a, a self-running community but once you try that you you come up pretty quickly against the control systems and you realize how controlled society actually is by the, these forces. And I remember as a specific example where in one week, four, I think, of the power system came in to complain, into the help or to complain about me, of the interference in Valley Firmers, education people, health people, the police. <laughs> uh, because these are the ones that control and run society. And they don't take kindly the idea that people could run their own lives. The reality is that people did step into that power. There might be no need for these people in the first place. But to be the controlling, yeah, it's 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 it's, it's that circle. Uh, and I think you know, if there is hope, like it'll be movement towards the creation of actual community, where where people run their own smaller communities. By definition, they have to be smaller if we're going to have personal relationships. I was in in that second book of papers. I had a short one about asking the question, "What are our actual human needs?" And I think first of all, we need certain physical, like we need shelter, food, uh, and temperature, heat, you know, physical things like that. Secondly, we need to relate to each other in a loving way, and on an equal basis. So men and women being equal, children being respected. And so there was all the age groups would need to be represented in, in something that would be genuine community. And, um, and then ultimately in relation to something to do with spirituality, with the source. I'm just summary it up a bit. But I mean, there are, if you like, five, five or six actual things that we need with the help of the whole capitalist system, we have hundreds of ones, even thousands. So you have all kinds of things that are going to be in a dire state if you don't put them in the toilet to kill bacteria, which which we actually need in the first place. <laughs> you said recently we're not living in a healthy society. We're living in a society that's systematically driving people mad. It's a society that needs to be fixed like what three things as a society would you see as the most important things to tackle, both globally and in Ireland? I think um central thing would be to ele- try and to create a, a system which would allow human beings to man- reasonably manage themselves. But it's, it's a, it's a catch-22 because and you can't create the system unless people are doing that already. Uh, so... But I mean, one example that I think you have to think of that the word community is horribly abused now. You hear people talking about the golfing community, the scientific community. These are not communities, they're functions. This community means all those needs and the people living together in one place where they relate on a personal level, which isn't always pleasant. I mean, I, I, this is a kind of necessary evil, if you like. I don't think I'd particularly like living in some kind of community or commune because you have all the human, you know, the, all the things that happened in a, or did happen in a village. But, I mean, the fact is, whether we like it or not, that's the only reality that could work and that we need to work with. 
but it's not all pleasant. It's, it's um, you know, because you have all the human things that come out and the jealousies and what the neighbours think and all of this stuff, the valley of the squinting windows. <laughs> uh, but, you know, that's what we have to work with. And I think if we worked on each ourselves as individuals and in community, then something could be created that would work better. But it, it wouldn't be all sweetness and light because we have to deal with all the, what Jung called the shadow, with all the, the negative aspects I wrote another paper about that, that that evil really only comes into being when we project out the unwanted parts of ourselves. If we keep them in and manage them, then you don't get evil. You, you just sort of work with the, the frailties. Um, but when you project them out, I mean, the, the, the most obvious example is what Hitler projected onto the Jews and some Catholics. And of course, in thinking that he was creating the ideal society, the actual horror grew up within that society in the, in the attempt to project out what what, he, what they didn't want. I mean, Hitler wasn't setting out to create a bad society, he was setting out to create a, a beautiful Aryan society. But of course, it doesn't work because you, it, you, know, you literally can't do it that way. You can't get rid of all the negative. You have to manage it. And if you don't manage it at the individual level, it, it expands out onto the next level. And then you get in society. And if you don't manage it there, then it affects the whole planet. And you see this sort of thing that's happening in Syria and whatever, you know. goes back to emotional intelligence. Would that be right? What do you mean by that? Emotional intelligence is about taking personal responsibility for your emotions, that you're not projecting outside. That's, that's the essential of it, that you manage, if you like, the shadow, as Jung calls it, the negative within yourself. And then if you don't project it, then, and others are doing the same, then the whole system becomes more manageable. But the attempt to get rid of it uh, then creates horrors like Syria at the moment. But you see, if you look, at how did Syria start? It started with, first of all, with the, um, the Twin Towers, and then Bush deciding to go into Iraq, which had nothing whatever to do with it. And from that stupidity then created this awful mess we have now, which is another aspect of the horrors of colonialism. There is a famous quote by Nelson Mandela from the book A Return to Love by Marion Williamson, which says, Our deepest fear is not that we are inadequate. Our deepest fear is that we are powerful beyond measure. It is our light, not our darkness, that most frightens us. We ask ourselves, who am I to be brilliant, gorgeous, talented, fabulous? Actually, who are we not to be? You are a child of God. Your playing small does not serve the world. There is nothing enlightened about shrinking so that other people don't feel insecure around you. We are all meant to shine as children do. We were born to make manifest the glory of God that is within us. It's not just in some of us, it's in everyone. And as we let our light shine, we unconsciously give other people permission to do the same. As we are liberated from our own fear, our presence automatically liberates others. How do you think we can liberate ourselves from fear and allow our own light to shine through? It seems to be saying there, like, we're really terrified of our own power. But it's only terrifying if we don't get down to the humble job of, of taking 
responsibility for it. And I mean, Mandela was a wonderful demonstration of that, that he turned what was a hateful system into a loving when he was in prison, uh, which is essentially the this, this sort of Christian message that, that Christ tried to bring forth. And it's there all the time. The only way we can really deal with hate and all this, what we call evil, is through love. And I think he, his life was a living demonstration of that, really extraordinary. So you have a few wonderful people like like him, like Gandhi, like um, Buddha himself, and, and Jesus Christ. Thanks so much for your time today. I really appreciate it. It was a real pleasure talking to you. You're a bollocks. <laughs> Thanks for listening to another inspiring and thought-provoking show of The Health Zone. I am Mihal Mahuna. Just to remind you, you can find us on facebook.com forward slash The Health Zone Show or you can join our Facebook group, The Health Zoners. We're also on Twitter, Instagram and pin interests under The Health Zone. To gain further invaluable resources on health and well-being, go to our website www.thehealthzone.com thehealthzoneshow.com When you're on there, join The Health Zone and you'll receive a free copy of my latest ebook, Seven Ways to Boost Your Overall Wellbeing. Finally, I would love to hear any feedback you may have on the show and even if there are any particular guests or topics which you're interested in, please email me on tunein at thehealthzoneshow.com Until next time, this is Hall. Thanks for listening and I wish you a very healthy happy and authentic week. Baby,